Jesus said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Adrian Rathel. One of the things my wife and I um, enjoy doing is uh, just having a little garden in, um, at our house where we live. Growing a few veggies, um, putting a, f- a few fruit trees in the time that we've been there and uh, just changing some of the gardens around and so forth. We find that we learn a lot. There's a lot of lessons um, that you can learn from just having nature around you. We have a, a family of fairy wrens that, that come in and out of our garden, um, which is just lovely. These little, my wife did some um, research on the internet about fairy wrens. I think they're about two ounces in weight, something like that. One of the lightest birds uh, that are around. And they, you know, they, they, they constantly twitch. They never sit still. They're just beautiful birds. And um, the, the males with, uh, with the blue feathers and so forth. And, and apparently there's males that are brown that don't have the colour as well. But um, we have this family that flutter, and, flutter in and out of our hedges and, and bushes and so forth. Um, but like many of you, we also have ants around our place. Um, and I don't know about you, but I've found that ants are great weather predictors. They know when there's a change coming, right? They, they, all of a sudden, they increase the level of activity. They just, instead of walking, they're running everywhere. And I guess what they're doing is, um, for, f- however, however it happens, they must be able to feel the change in the barometric pressure because um, you know that, that um, uh, it's going to rain in the next couple of days when they start increasing their activity. So maybe they're storing food, maybe they're lifting their nests um, up from low-lying areas to high, higher areas, whatever it might be. But you can learn a lot from observing nature Um, Even Solomon in in, uh, Proverbs chapter 6 says, Go to the ants. What's the next bit? (laughs) If if you're King James Version, you sluggard. Um, Now, sluggard is not a word that we use a lot. And I actually had to look it up, what uh, what it actually means. A sluggard is somebody who is habitually lazy. Okay? So go to the ant and learn her ways. Be wise. Learn her ways. That um, obviously God doesn't want us to be uh, uh, to be lazy in, in, in living our lives. Most people who most scientists um, around take a different view to what us Bible believing Christians do in terms of how life began, how we've gotten to where we are now. Okay, um, if I was a betting person and I'm not. Um, I would uh, suggest that uh, basically all of the documentaries that you have watched recently on TV don't, don't reference creation at all or God as the creator. They talk about huge, great, long periods of time. They talk about um, how things have changed slowly over these vast periods of time and uh, natural selection and evolutionary pro- um, processes and all of those kinds of things. So those of us who do believe, who take the Bible as it reads, in terms of the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis, what do we do with this tension that we're constantly faced with? And I don't know about you, but you know, it, 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 it comes up on a regular basis. Um, how do we put these two things together? Is it possible 
to live with that tension or is it a matter of choosing either what appears to be on one side is science and on the other side is the claims of the Bible? How do we live with that and what do we do with it? The Big Bang Theory, or the Big Bang, not the Big Bang Theory, the Big Bang is estimated to have occurred somewhere about 3.5 billion years ago. Um, Even in our country here in Australia, Aboriginals, it is claimed, have lived here about 50 or 60,000 years. And when we hear information like that, what goes through our mind? What goes through your mind? Yeah, yeah, you're right, it's a long time. As I mentioned, all of the evidence seems to be on the side of science. So you have scientists, you have um, universities, you have um, books and magazines and research and all of that kind of stuff, um, textbooks, documentary, documentaries, um, facts. And on the other side, you have, as, as some people would claim, faith or the claims of the Bible. Are they compatible? Can we live? Is it one or the other? Or is it a matter of, uh, can, can the two of them live together side by side? So if we look at um, some recent research by the Barna Institute, um, and this is, these are American figures, but um, I, I would think that it's probably even more stark in Australia. The various generations, going from the elders through to the Gen X, uh, Gen Z, the percentage of atheists amongst the US population in 2018 is you go from 5 or 6% up to 13% for the current generation. I would imagine, as I say, even here in Australia, it's probably more stark than that. The prophet Jeremiah wrote at a critical time in the history of the ancient Middle East or the nation of Israel. Judah was under the control of Egypt uh, under the control of Egypt and, and Pharaoh Nico, um, or Pharaoh Nico was, was placed on the throne. And the reason that they aligned themselves with the Egyptians is that the Babylonians up north um, had been menacing their northern border. And Israel said, well, we're not a very strong nation and we've got this massive, powerful nation, the Babylonians, um, Looks like they're going to invade us. We need some help. We need, we're not strong enough on our own. And yet the prophet Jeremiah is trying to remind the people all of the time, don't make an alliance with the nation of, of Egypt. God will care for you. God will look after you. God will, will, uh, will take care of you. Um, but the people did not believe that. And so they made an alliance with the Egyptians. And as I mentioned, Pharaoh was put on the throne or, or um, was influencing or, or looking after the nation of Israel. But he did it on his terms, and the Israelites had to, to give quite a few concessions um, and so forth to the Egyptians. The other thing that happened at the same time is that instead of, in adversity, turning back to God, the people actually turned or renewed their focus on idols and idol worship. And Jeremiah addresses this in his book, And he makes this stark contrast between the God of heaven and the idols that that the people of Israel were worshipping. So I invite you to turn with me to um, the book of Jeremiah, chapter 10, verse 1, in your devices or your Bibles, whatever. Jeremiah, chapter 10, verse 1. 
And notice the, uh, the contrast that Jeremiah makes here. It's quite stark. Jeremiah chapter 10, reading from verse 1. And he says this, Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 1. Hear the word of Hear the word which the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, do not learn the way of the Gentiles. Do not be dismayed at the signs of heaven, for the Gentiles are dismayed at them. Verse 3, for the customs of the peoples are futile. For one cuts a tree from the forest, the work of the hands of the workmen with the axe. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with nails and hammers so that it will not topple. Verse 5, They are upright like a palm tree and they cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot go by themselves. Do not be afraid of them for they cannot do evil nor can they do any good. Interesting passage of scripture. God here, to me, as I read through, through this passage and reading between the lines, he's got a cynical smile on his face. He's saying to the people, let me see if I've got this right. So you send one of your craftsmen out into the forest to cut down a tree. You make a shape out of it. You cover it with silver and gold. And then you have to fasten it into position so it doesn't topple over. And then you have to carry it around because it cannot move by itself. And you bow down and you worship this thing. Have I got that right? Now, we wouldn't do something like that, would we? We're intelligent, you know, educated people. We wouldn't bow down to an idol and worship it, right? Well, maybe not an idol like that. And then God says with a cynical smile on his face, this thing has no eyes, it cannot see, it cannot talk, and yet you are bowing down your allegiance So on one side of the coin, uh, uh, Jeremiah paints this picture of idols. And then on the other side of the coin, he paints the picture of the God of heaven. And notice how he describes God. I think it's very significant. Verse 6, Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 6. Inasmuch as there is none like you, O Lord, you are great and your name is great in might. Verse 7, who would not fear you, O king of the nations? For this is your rightful due, for among all the wise men of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. I think there's a song about that. Verse 8. But they are all together dull-hearted and foolish. A wooden idol is a worthless doctrine. Come down to verse 10. Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 10. But the Lord is the true God. He is the, what's the next word? Living. He doesn't have to be nailed to a piece of wood so he doesn't topple over. He has eyes to see. He has ears to hear. He is the living God and the everlasting king. At his wrath, the earth will tremble. He doesn't have to be carried around because he can't move on his own. And the nations will not be able to endure his indignation. And then notice verse 11, Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 11. Thus you shall say to them, the gods that have not made the heavens 
and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. He has made the earth by his power. He has established the world by his wisdom and has stretched out the heavens at his discretion. Verse 13, when he utters his voice, there is a multitude of waters in the heavens and, the, and he causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain and brings the wind out of the treasuries. These verses are a direct reference back to Genesis chapter 1, where God separated the waters um, from uh, the waters in the heavens to the waters under the, um, under the heavens and so forth, the atmosphere, um, the, the, um, um, the environment, the oxygen and so forth, where he stretched out the heavens. And then come down to verse 16. The portion of Jacob is not like them, for he is the what? He is the maker of all things. And Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. What is Jeremiah saying here? The one thing that separates the God of heaven from the idols is that he is the creator God. And as I read through the Bible, as I read through scripture, over and over again, this theme keeps coming through and coming through. God is the creator God. You can't get away from it in scripture. Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. John chapter 1 verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Verse 3. All things were made through him and without him nothing was made that was made. Revelation chapter 14 verse 6. The first angel's message. A message that goes to the whole world. Fear God, give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens and the earth, the seas and the springs of water. Excuse me. And then to cap things off at the end of the millennium, God does it again. This time he recreates. Revelation chapter 21, verse 5. Then he who sat on his throne said, Behold, I make all things new. God as the creator is from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible. So what do we do with this tension that we have to live with? Where so much evidence, so much science, so much factual information seems to be on the basis of, well, pushing God out of the equation, that life began somehow with a big bang or life began somehow in some primordial um, substance and and it grew and developed from there. What do we do with it? How do we live with that tension? Have we got a leg to stand on if we literally believe the first 11 chapters of the Old Testament, the book of Genesis? Let me make a couple of points that might be helpful. And um, we'll come back to... Sorry, we'll we'll come back to that, that first slide. That's fine. My first point, don't believe everything you read or hear. Now, I have a tremendous amount of respect for Sir David Attenborough. And I'm sure you've seen some of his his material. He makes awesome documentaries, incredible footage. Um, His latest series, Blue Planet 2, some of you have probably seen that. Um, Just amazing. 
and footage that you would never ever see in your own life, uh, your own um, lifespan or, or, or lifetime. So he, he brings us some fascinating insights into nature and animals. He flies the flag for conservation. He has a list of awards and honours as long as your arm. Let me share with you a couple of them. 1974, Commander of the Order of the British Empire. 1985, and he received a knighthood. 2005, Order of Merit, and on and on it goes. But having said that, he makes some interesting observations in his DVD series, The Life of Mammals, which interestingly enough starts right here in Australia. If you've seen the first, uh, the first um, of the series, the first DVD in the series, or the first episode. Now, just to remind ourselves, a mammal is. How would you define a mammal? What separates a mammal from other animals? Sorry? Um, most. Most. Okay. Oh, here's a lady who knows her biology. Um, so, warm blooded, um, the young suckle from the mothers, and um, they have hair. Um, now, Attenborough makes the claim here in Australia that we have evidence of the evolution of mammals. The oldest mammal, he claims, are the echidnas and the platypus. What is unique about those mammals? Oh, they lay eggs. Give the lady a prize. They lay eggs. All right. Then it is claimed that mammals thrive, diversified and changed over millions of years until we get to the kangaroo, which don't lay eggs but give birth to live young without shells. And as we know, the little um, young kangaroo, whatever, comes out of the birth canal, climbs up the, the fur into the pouch and um, lives in that pouch for quite a long period of time, from b- between nine months and 12 months. Interestingly enough, the, the chemical composition of the mother kangaroo constantly changes to provide just the right nutrition for that growing joey through the time that it's in that pouch. But then mammals changed again, apparently, until we get to animals that are born in a placenta connected by an umbilical cord, such as cows and sheep, as well as lions and bears in other countries. But with all due respect to Mr. Attenborough and not claiming to be a scientist in any way, shape or form, I do have a couple of questions. If mammals evolved from egg-laying to those born with live young without shells to those born in a placenta, why do we still have egg-laying mammals today? If some changed, why not all? Because the claim is that echidnas and platypus are actually animals that were around millions and millions of years ago. Attenborough goes on to claim that mammals came from egg-laying reptiles, this common ancestry thinking. Okay, you've got to get back to a common ancestor. But reptiles are cold-blooded, not warm-blooded. 
And if mammals came from egg-laying reptiles, that is, as it is claimed, how do you get from cold-blooded to warm-blooded? What was the process? Where is the evidence? And perhaps a more significant question is, why? Reptiles are fine as warm-blooded animals, and you probably have them around your place. We have, you know, when the sun's out, the lizards come out and they sun themselves. Hopefully you don't have too many nasty snakes or anything like that around, but my wife and I have been in a situation where, you know, you're walking through the bush and you come across a clearing where the sun's coming down through the trees, and there's this snake warming itself. Um, We had the privilege last year of going up to Darwin for the first time, and, I mean, to see crocodiles in the wild is just an awesome experience and going down these these billabongs and lagoons and so forth and you see these crocodiles just sunning themselves because again they're they're cold-blooded cold-blooded animals um, reptiles and you've got to have um, the the way they get warm is to just get the warmth from the sun until the air temperature um, drops too too much in the late afternoon evening and they they slip into the water because the water is warmer for them So how do you get from cold-blooded to warm-blooded? And as I said, the question is, why? Reptiles operate fine as cold-blooded animals. They don't need it. They don't need to be warm-blooded. They don't need need to start producing milk. They they live without it quite fine. What were the intervening stages between those two? David Attenborough and his research team make these sweeping statements and broad generalisations at times. That when you start to think about them and pull them apart, require actually more faith to believe in than it takes to believe in the creatorship of God. Now, I acknowledge that people have a range of, um, of, of, of views and understanding when it comes to origins and how we have life today. I'll put my cards on the table. I am a Bible-believing Seventh-day Adventist Christian. And I accept the fact that the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis, it's not poetry, it's not written in poetry, it's prose. It's commentary on how life began. Do we have all of the answers? No. Do we have lots of questions? Yes. But I choose to accept those 11 chapters as factual and believe that God is the creator God. Because as I read through the Bible, the one thing that comes through over and over and over and over again, the one thing that separates the God of heaven apart from any other God is that he creates. In fact, the Hebrew word for creation, for create, barand, bara, is only ever used in connection with God. No human being, as you read through scripture only used in connection with God. Now, we have a little video clip um, that I'd like to show you from this, um, uh, from this series. Listen carefully to what David Attenborough is saying in this short video clip. Thank you. Now... At night, there are even more flying insects than there were during the day. And down by the mill stream, there's a colony of Dorbenton's bats that are already stirring. 
Their little faces are so like a shrew's that it's easy to imagine shrew-like ancestors in the trees, jumping from branch to branch, chasing insects. Ever larger flaps of skin between their fingers help to extend those jumps until, eventually, they could fly. And how they can fly. The change from a scurrying animal like a shrew to a fluttering bat is surely the most magical in the whole history of the mammals. The bat's mastery of flight is so complete that few insects can outmaneuver them in the air. The bat scoops up the moth with the membrane around its tail and then passes it forward to the mouth. Thanks, guys. Did you hear what he's had to say? Talking about the Dorbentis bats, their little faces are so like a shrew that it's easy to imagine their shrew-like ancestors in the trees, jumping from branch to branch, chasing insects. Ever larger flaps of skin between their fingers helped to extend those jumps until eventually they could fly. The change from a scurrying animal like a shrew to a fluttering bat is surely the most magical in the whole history of animals. Do you have a question for Mr Attenborough and his research team? I do. Where is the evidence? What were the intervening stages? Do you know what a shrew is? Let me show you. We'll come back to that. That's a shrew. There's, several, there's a number of different types of them. They're a little scurrying animal like a mouse. Um, we don't have them here in Australia. They're in other parts of the world. But Mr Attenborough would have us believe that we went from a shrew to a Dorbentus bat. And he says, he asks us to imagine. There is no evidence. And then he says, as they, as they started to chase insects, the flaps of skin between their toes began to grow until eventually they could fly. And he says that's one of the most magical things in the whole history of animals. Yes, it is magical that bats can fly, but my argument is that every part of a bat is designed for flight. The bone structure had to change dramatically. The muscle structure, bats use high-intensity sound detection to find their prey. Shrews don't. How did that change come about? And again, if some shrews changed, why didn't they all change and why aren't they still changing today? Ladies, forgive me, a car illustration. I'm a male, I can't help it. Consider a base model Toyota Camry compared to a top-of-the-range Mercedes-Benz. They're both cars. Both have four wheels, a chassis, body, steering wheel and seats. 
In many respects, they look similar. But a Mercedes-Benz will have lane assist, adaptive cruise control, collision avoidance, automatic wipers, leather, luxury leather trim, heated and cooled front seats, etc., etc., etc. One is more complex, has more features and a higher level of engineering and design than the other, but that does not mean that a Mercedes-Benz came from a Camry. They come from different countries, different manufacturers, different designers, different engineers, made by different robots. They are designed from the ground up totally differently. You can't take the chassis and the wheels of a Toyota Camry and make a Mercedes-Benz out of it. It doesn't work. There were very intelligent minds behind both vehicles and the complexity of a car, even a, even a top-of-the-range Mercedes-Benz, is nothing compared to the complexity of a single cell. Don't believe everything you hear or read. Secondly, not all scientists subscribe to the theory of evolution. And some have real issues with it, and there are non-Christians and non-religious scientists in that group. You might be familiar with the work of John Ashton, um, who's a scientist here and uh, lives um, just up in the uh, Lake Macquarie district, wrote the book, In Six Days, Why 50 Scientists Choose to Believe in Creation. Interesting book to read. I think I may have referred to this one before. Um, written by David Belinsky, who's a mathematician who lectures in, in Paris. He's a secular Jew. Um, I'm not sure that he believes in God, but you remember when Richard Dawkins wrote the book The God Delusion in 2006, saying that people who choose to believe in God are deluded. David Belinsky wrote a rebuttal to that book in 2009 called The Devil... Um, the Devil's Delusion, Atheism and Its Scientific Pretensions. And in this book, he argues that atheism or evolution is actually based on totally false premises. And he's not a church-going scientist. The material is out there. Not all scientists subscribe to the theory of evolution. Thirdly, anything left to itself, does it get better? Or does it get worse? On the whole, it gets worse. Things decay. You take a house. So you leave your house, your home. You go away for 50 years or, or, or longer or something like that. Is the house, if nothing happens to it or nobody goes near it, is it going to be better when you come back to it? Or is it going to be worse? It's going to deteriorate. It's going to be insects and, and uh, cobwebs and, and the paint's going to be deteriorating. All of those kinds of things take any object, animate or inanimate. A house, a car, a, a dog, a cat, anything. The beginning of life to the end of life are totally different. Things deteriorate. They get worse. Evidence, uh, sorry, evolution demands that there are major positive changes and they, and they are happening all of the time. To get from a shrew to a bat, you've got to have not hundreds, not thousands, not tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of positive changes happening, all going in the same direction, all heading toward the same goal, with no one to guide it, no intelligence at all. Everything has to get better on its own, with no pattern, no engineer, no designer. 
to go from a reptile to a mammal, same thing. Now, having said that, as we mentioned before, there is still much that we don't know and we have lots of questions. But my argument is that evolutionists have a lot of questions for creationists. But on the same token, creationists can also have a lot of questions for evolutionists. Most of us, when it's warm, not, not today when it's cold, but when it's warm, enjoy a swim, jumping into a pool or going down to the beach or something like that. But an interesting question to ask is, when we jump into a deep body of water, and hopefully we'll only ever do it when it's safe to do so, like a diving pool or something like that, when we jump into a deep body of water, why is it that we don't fill up with water on the inside? Why don't we drown? One of the things is our skin. You think about it. Along with many one-way valves in our nose and ears and membranes and all of that kind of stuff, all working together. But when you think about it, our skin, our lips, you can put your head underwater and just apply a little pressure, not very much at all, but put your lips together and you have a perfect watertight seal, right? No water will go in there. You have a perfect watertight seal. But if human beings want a perfect watertight seal, what do we have to do? Like our watch or something like that. It has to be engineered. It has to be crafted, designed. We have to put rubber seals in there. We have to pressure test it. And on and on it goes. And yet as human beings, we can jump into a deep body of water and have a perfect watertight seal immediately just by applying a little bit of pressure to our lips. Think about it. Yes, there is tension between creation and science, and we don't have all of the answers. But I don't believe they are, they are mutually exclusive. We referred to Ellen White before, and Ellen White, a Christian commentator in the 1800s, most of her life there, a prodigious writer. She wrote what I believe is arguably the best devotional book ever written. It's called Steps to Christ. If you haven't read it, I encourage you to get a hold of it and read it. And her opening sentence, and this, this really struck me just recently, her opening sentence in the book Steps to Christ is, nature and revelation alike testify of God's love. Now, nature, we could say science, revelation, the Bible. Alike testify of God's love. It's not one or the other, it's both and. She goes on to say, Our Father in heaven is the source of life, of wisdom and of joy. Look at the wonderful and beautiful things of nature. Think of their marvellous adaption to the needs and happiness, not only, of, not only of human beings, but of all living creatures. Now, she's not a scientist. She doesn't claim to be a scientist. But I believe that she was used by God. And here she says it's not one or the other. It's both and. Nature and revelation alike testify of God's love. So what do we do with this tension? We have to live with it all the time. And I'm sure you may have had conversations with people, um, colleagues or friends at uni or workplace or neighbours or fa even family members about this tension between science, so well, science and the Bible. 
What do we do with it? The Bible says that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. When was the beginning? Was it relatively recently, say six to 10,000 years ago? Was it much earlier than that? People have different views on that. When was life created? How was it created? How long has it been around? How long has life been on this earth? We don't know all of the answers to those questions. But we have to live with the tension. And each one of us has to choose. What are we going to believe? And on what basis are we going to believe it? The Bible says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I choose to believe that statement. What about you? So let's bow our heads as we pray. Father in heaven, we've come here this afternoon to praise you, to think about you. And Father, yeah, we look forward to that day where we will join together with people from all around the world to worship you, to worship the Lamb forever, without ceasing day and night, as the angels do now. Father, but in the meantime, we need to live with this tension down here. The Bible says that you are the creator God, the one thing that sets you apart from all other gods that are worshipped. You are the creator. You made the heavens and the earth. You made life in all its complexity. And yet, Father, there are, there's an increasing tide of opinion to push you out of the equation, to push you into the corner, to get you out of public life, Father. Give us courage to stand for you, to stand for your word, and give us the peace we need to live with the tension that we see around us. Father, I just want to pray for each person here, each family that's represented. You know all of us. You know our issues. You know the things that we're facing, the struggles that we have. Father, nothing is new to you. And I just want to pray if there's anyone struggling particularly or facing a really difficult time at the moment, that you will come very close to that person. May they sense your presence in a very real and powerful way. Father, the, uh, the Sabbath hours will, um, will come to an end shortly and we'll start a new week. And we just invite you to come with us in the things that we do, the responsibilities that we have, the tasks that we have to deal with. Father, we only want you and we always want you to be by our side. Help us to grow in our relationship with you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was made available by Fountain in the City. For more resources like this, visit fountaininthecity.com.au. Phantom View Academy will now be performing How Great Thou Art.
Welcome to God's Favourite Shepherds, a collection of 39 short stories rounding out the lives of mainly lesser-known Bible characters, with many of the stories ending with a short quiz. Listen now to the author of God's Favourite Shepherds, Bill Ackland. Today's story is Days of Purim. Beauty and Courage Saved a Nation. This story is based on the book of Esther. I lived during a broken period in my nation's history. Most of the tribes of Israel had been dispersed among other nations many years ago. Judah, Benjamin and half the tribe of Manasseh had remained intact but with a very chequered history. Under one king we worshipped the God of heaven. When an evil king came to the throne, most of the people worshipped idols of one kind or another. After hundreds of years of disobedience and rebellion by his chosen people, God's patience had reached its limit, allowing the mighty kingdom of Babylon, with Nebuchadnezzar as its powerful monarch, to overcome us. They destroyed our beloved city of Jerusalem and the beautiful temple Solomon had built hundreds of years before. Most of the people of Judah and virtually all the inhabitants of Jerusalem were marched off in chains to Babylon. We were destined to be a nation of slaves. Kings came and went there over the years, and in my lifetime, Persia ruled the former Babylonian territory. Things were better for us as a people under the Persians, but we were still second-class citizens, and there were strict boundaries on the limited freedoms we were given. Then something happened at the palace of King Ahasuerus, also known as Xerxes I, which altered my life and that of my much older cousin, Mordecai. When my parents died, Mordecai looked after me as his own daughter. My father's name was Abihail. At a gathering decreed by the king and attended by all the important officials from the 127 provinces of his empire, plans were laid for the invasion of Greece, which had proved very difficult to conquer. At this convention, which lasted for six months, much feasting and drinking occurred, and at one time the king ordered his beautiful Queen Vashti to come before the assembly to display herself, wearing only her crown. Of course, she would not do such an embarrassing and demeaning thing. She refused the king's order. This made Ahasuerus furious, He felt that his royal authority had been challenged. He would not let this incident pass without taking action to uphold his royal dignity. So he called his wise men before him to ask them what they suggest should be done to Queen Vashti, who had treated the king in such a disrespectful way. Menucan, one of the seven royal princes of Persia and Media, approached the king suggesting that he banish Queen Vashti that she be no longer regarded as his queen, and that he should look for another to take her place. If he did this, then the women of his empire, be they wives of prominent men or not, would learn that they should respect and obey their husbands, and law and order would be maintained throughout the empire. This suggestion pleased the king. A search was made throughout this empire for the most beautiful young women to be brought to Shushan, also known as Susa. From these young women, 
another queen could be chosen by the king. Somehow I was caught up in the search for a replacement for the queen. I was sure that I would not be chosen, as there were so many beautiful young women in the empire who would take notice of me. Imagine my disbelief when, a year later, having been presented to the king, he chose me as the one to replace Queen Vashti. King Ahasuerus even declared a holiday to celebrate his new queen with a grand feast to match, calling it the Feast of Esther. Esther was my Persian name, meaning star. Gifts were given to many of his people to show his joy in having a new queen. I don't know if the outcome would have been the same if he knew that I was a Jew, as Mordecai had told me not to reveal anything about my background. As happened in the courts of most kings, there are always some who were not pleased with the monarch for one reason or another. In Ahasuerus' case, two of his servants, Bigthan and Tiresh, doorkeepers in the palace, had plotted to kill the king. Mordecai heard of the plot, told me and I informed the king, advising him that I had received this information from Mordecai. These men were dealt with and hanged on gallows, which put an end to their plans. A record was made of this matter in the Chronicles of the Kingdom of Persia, written out in the presence of the king. I had become aware of a man who had great power in the kingdom. He was by no means my favourite person. The king had given him authority over all the princes of the empire, and everyone was ordered by the king to bow to him when he passed by. But Mordecai would not bow to him or give him the respect that Haman felt he was due. Haman determined to have his revenge, so he planned to not only do away with Mordecai, but all the Jewish people as well. Of course, he did not realise that the new queen was also a Jew. Mordecai told me what was planned. He had heard of it before I did. The king had gone along with Haman's plan to kill all the Jews, quite oblivious that this would also include his beautiful new queen. My dear cousin was not afraid to be identified as a Jew, for he went through the city weeping and wailing, clothed with sackcloth, to show his great grief. Mordecai told me that I would have to go into the king's presence, unannounced, to plead for the lives of my people. If the king did not extend his royal scepter, then I would be put to death. Whether that eventuated or not, I was willing to do this, for my cousin said, perhaps it was for this reason I had come into such a prominent position in the kingdom at this very time. I thought quickly of a plan that I hoped would be successful. With God's blessing, I would ask the king if he and Haman would attend a banquet I had prepared to honour them. Thankfully, the king not only extended his scepter to me, but also accepted my invitation to a special banquet in his honour. Naturally, it was a banquet fit for a king. King Ahasuerus suspected that there must have been something more than an invitation to a banquet on my mind when I came into his presence without an invitation. He asked me what was it that I wanted to ask him. I replied by inviting him and Haman to another banquet the following day. I assured the king that I would tell him what was on my mind then. 
With a quizzical look on his face, the king assured me that he would be there and that Haman must attend too. Unbeknown to me at the time, Haman had taken steps to personally put Mordecai to death by building the tallest gallows that had ever been built, over 20 metres high. That night, the king was restless and could not sleep, no matter how hard he tried. So he ordered one of the servants to bring the book of the chronicles of his kingdom to read to him. When the man read of the plot to kill the king, and that nothing had been done to reward Mordecai, who had uncovered the plot, the king was determined to honour him. Before he could say what should be done, Haman came to visit the king. As soon as Haman stood before him, the king asked him a leading question. What should be done for the man whom the king wishes to honour? Thinking that there was no one else except himself that the king wished to honour, Haman outlined a plan to the king that he felt would show to the people what a favourite he was with the king. Imagine his shock when the king told him that you now go and personally carry out this plan and honour Mordecai in this way. Haman could not imagine anything more demeaning to his dignity than leading this man around the city on one of the king's horses. This was the very man whom he hated so much. He was the man he planned to hang on the tallest gallows in the land. However, there was no time to do anything about that just then, for the king's officials went to Haman's residence to escort him to the banquet with the king and queen. This made him feel a little better. He would deal with Mordecai at an appropriate time, soon after the banquet was over. So the banquet proceeded smoothly in harmony with royal protocol, but the king was anxious to know the real reason Esther had approached him in the first instance. He asked me again, "'What is it you wish to ask me, Queen Esther? "'I assure you, your request will be honoured. "'I'll even give you up to half of my kingdom.' Inwardly terrified, but outwardly composed, I told the king what had been planned against my people. Shocked, the king demanded I tell him who was behind such a wicked plan that would involve killing the queen, as well as many people of his empire. It is this wicked Haman, O king, I replied. The king immediately got up from his couch and strode out into the royal garden nearby to try to compose himself and determine what should be done. He returned soon after, finding that Haman had fallen onto the couch beside me, appearing to be in a position to seduce me. The king could not contain his rage any longer. He ordered Haman to be hung on the gallows Haman had built for Mordecai. The Jews as a people were saved from death. God has helped me to fulfil his will for them through the honour position I held in the empire. I was glad to see that my cousin was also wanted by the king. Mordecai was the one who had cared for me for much of my childhood and young womanhood. He was appointed next in power in the empire to King Ahasuerus. To celebrate this great deliverance, the Jewish people have kept these days of deliverance called Purim in gratitude to God for saving his people. And then we have a quiz for you. What was the name of the king of Babylon who captured most of the people of Judah and Jerusalem. Later, after Persia had conquered Babylon, what was their king's name? What 
was the name of the queen who refused to obey the king's order? Was Esther's cousin younger or older than she? How high was the gallows Haman had made for Mordecai? You've been listening to God's Favoured Shepherds, a book with 39 short stories rounding out the lives of mainly lesser-known Bible characters. If you have any comments or questions, or to obtain a copy of this book, give us a call within Australia on 02-4973-3456 or send an email to radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au. We'd love to hear from you. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.